Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I'm joined by Shalu Garg, and Shalu is the Managing Director of Microsoft for Startups and the Global Lead for Microsoft Global Social Entrepreneur Program. She brings a combination of strong startup enterprise strategic partnership and corporate development experience that has served her and countless of her mentees, including me, by the way, in the technology center and beyond. And previously, Shalu was at Oracle, where she uh, led the corporate innovation practice of commercializing revenue opportunities for startups into the enterprise client base and partner ecosystem. She has also led a go-to-market for Oracle's cloud business and was part of the M&A team that acquired PeopleSoft, Cybell, uh, Raytech, and more. Prior to joining Oracle, Shalou also had extensive startup experience in the tech industry. She's passionate about tech for good, and she's on the board of directors at UN Women, Silicon Valley, where she's spinning up virtual innovation labs, leveraging emerging technology to encourage digital literacy in developing countries for young girls who do not have access to education. So Shalou, I know I probably didn't do full justice to your experience. Is there anything else you wanna add before we get started? Not at all, Denise. Thank you very much for such a warm introduction and thank you for the opportunity here. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I am. I am too. And just to give our audience just a little bit of background, I just want to say Shalu has been a champion of mine. Um, I've had a long and successful career, but I have to say that I've never had a mentor, let alone a female mentor. And I'm going to call Shalu more than a mentor. She's actually more of a sponsor in the in the in in the sense that she has used her achievements, her status, uh, her expertise to really sort of uh, pull me up um, to higher levels uh, as a female tech founder. And, and Shalu, I, I have always said there are some women out there that operate from a point of view of scarcity, meaning that they have worked so hard that they just um, you know, don't or won't spend the time to pull up other women uh, you know, to follow in their footsteps. And, uh, and then there are those who have a more expansive view uh, and are able to use their position and knowledge to bring others up. And I want you to know that I'm very grateful that you are one of them. We learn from each other, Denise. It's, um, that's the part of the process, right? You, you learn from me. I learn from someone else. I learn from you as well. So uh, yeah, all good stuff. Okay. Well, I mean, I know, I know just enough about your background and your extensive experience, particularly of living throughout the world, that I really want our listeners to start off by understanding how that has shaped your worldview and your, and your personal and professional life. And I, I realize that you, you know, your experience is extensive and there are some things that maybe are more personal than others, but to the extent that you feel comfortable, I'd love for you to share that uh, with, with our listeners. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, um, I, I'm an Indian by birth and um, I grew up in Middle East. My dad was a, a nautical engineer back in time when the Boeing 747, the planes were, you know, really more of a luxury uh, and he he was in he was just transferred in Middle East, moving from Dubai to Saudi Arabia to Kuwait to Iraq, and um, I grew up in a very 
diversified cultural environment. And also I would say uh, in, in, in an environment which was which was very, which was constantly changing. Like I had to change schools every six to nine months in my elementary, middle and high school. Initially it was fun because obviously I was making a lot of new friends, going to new places, uh, you know, just trying out new foods, uh, of course, learning the local language, which is Arabic and Arabic is pretty dominant all across Middle East. But, you know, there were a few things that stuck with me uh, while growing up. And I, I personally believe, when I look back into my growing years, I believe that experiences that I had during those years have shaped me the person I am today. So I want to share with you um, a very short example, which actually drives me till today. This was way, way back when I was in sixth grade. I was... Um, you know, I was, I was studious. I was, you know, sort of I used to have fun at school and of course balanced with my schooling as well. And my neighbor was my best friend at that time. And I remember going to school every morning uh, with her older brothers. At that time, they were 13 or 15 years old, teenage years. Um, and they would come back with me as well uh, after school. But I never saw my friend coming to school with me. And every time I would come back from school, she was always there at home. And, you know, I used to get very jealous of her. I, I was like, why am I the one who's always constantly going to school and, you know, studying for these exams? And she gets to have all the fun. Um, it was sort of a dilemma in my mind. I was jealous, but at the same time, I questioned quite a bit, like, why? Why, why is that that she, she doesn't go to school? I asked my parents. I asked her. You know, I asked her brothers. I couldn't get a straight answer out of it, but it stuck with me. It stuck with me for a very long time. And, go, and you know, very soon after that, I moved um, to a different state within within Middle East. And so, of course, you know, I still very fondly remember her, haven't been in touch with her for since the time she was my neighbor. But Denise, what it did to me was um, it constantly bothered me. And the jealousy moved on to some severe questioning as to why was she not allowed to go to school? And somewhere when I used to interact with her, I did get the message from her that, hey, you know, she can't go to school. And I could not figure out why. It was later when I was doing my master's, my MBA, I had taken technology as an elective. And um, I had this project, which was, you know, build, build something, build like a solution that is good for your community, a local community. That's when, you know, once again, she emerged very strongly in my mind. And I started sort of down this path of figuring out how can we use technology to bridge that gap? And it was a very bold undertaking. I mean, this was quite a few years ago. Uh, didn't have too much technology exposure as we do today in today's times. And so it took me down a path where I went deeper and deeper and deeper into understanding the the value and the power that technology holds. And, and that sort of really drives me till today. Later down the line, of course, you know, with that energy and drive that I had, I went on to do a lot of philanthropic work, uh, voluntary work, like in United Nations, Gates Foundation, et cetera, where 
I utilize the, the power that technology has in challenging the status quo, the way our community is today, our society is, and I can give you many examples of some of the projects that I'm, I'm involved in. Um, and so that shaped me as a person on fundamentally on two levels. One, really valuing the power that technology holds. We cannot underestimate the power that, that technology holds. It's the strongest catalyst of change. Bottom line, that's, that's what it is. And then number two, me as an individual, you know, I, I started questioning on deeper levels, just understanding as to the stigma that exists in our community, even today when girls are not allowed to go to school. This was what my experience was like perhaps over a decade ago or maybe two decades ago, but this stigma even exists in the community today. And it drives me every single day to say, how is it even possible? Why are we not leveraging technology to push that change in the community? And so that sort of grounded me as an individual into my professional as well as my personal life as well. Okay, that, that really helps to give some, some perspective. Um, I, I, I would kind of like to dive a little bit deeper into you know, how, how you feel technology is playing a role in changing the landscape of global development. And, and also, I, I know in, in, in discussions between us, um, you, you know, you have talked about, you know, how it has helped to level the playing field, you know, with a lot of specificity. And I know that you have a lot of examples. So I'd love uh, for you to talk about that. Great question, Denise. Um, technology, if you look at it, has no overall purpose on its own. Its effects are fundamentally driven by the choices that we humans make and our own actions. Now, if you look at history, history is filled with examples of its potential, both to do good and to cause harm. For example, electricity bought substantial product productivity gains, but also long transitions from agriculture to industry that were accompanied at times by stagnating real wages. I mean, that's a fundamental issue that exists in our community today. And once thriving manufacturing and mining towns have been depleted by the shift to a more service-based economy, it's a fundamental shift that's happening, which is, you know, you can argue, one can argue that is it good or is it bad? Now, in short, technology will not improve life of its own. It will need development agenda for policymakers, for business leaders that mitigates some of its downside effects of technology adoption, both in short and longer term. And so I just wanted to level set this before I get into the examples that, you know, folks like you and I cannot just take our our this whole paradigm around technology and go fight the war about how technology can be the strongest catalyst for change. It has to come from top to bottom. So I'll give you some examples that I have personally been involved through my work with UN Women and uh, fundamentally through Gates Foundation as well quite a few years ago. But there are a couple of projects that I want to highlight. One is going back to um, the online schooling, right? The example that I gave you. I'm personally extremely passionate about ed tech space. Outside of my work, I mean, that's one space that I spend a lot of time getting deeper understanding of how the world is operating in that space. So just to give you an example, going back to my school friend who did not have access to school, right? Because of community, because of, you know, for whatever reason that exists. 
I alone cannot fight that conversation or even cannot justify that conversation at a local level. But what I can do is bring technology to that girl who does not have access to education. So one of the things we have done through United Nations in the last couple of years is partnered with Apple on their refurbish inventory and um, obsolete stock, right? So the stuff that's the iPads in their warehouse, what we are doing is we are uploading digital curriculum on that and then shipping it off to developing economies like Uganda, Somalia, Syrian refugee camps. That's something that I've, I've been intricately engage, engaged with just in terms of how we operate in refugee camps. The goal there is super simple, which is, let's say there's a seven-year-old girl, Maya, and I'm very much engaged uh, with Maya. She's actually based in Somalia. She is not allowed to go to school. Her life is primarily focused on taking care of her two-year-old sibling, cleaning the house, helping her mom with, with food, with laundry, etc. And so what we have done is designed this biometric way of enabling education. So she gets an iPad at home. And of course, there's a biometric element in it. She goes in every day. She has to commit one hour of her time on that iPad, right? And if you look at the disparity that exists, I mean, our kids go to school for six hours. And all we are asking her to do is give one hour. But that one hour is super powerful. Because that can fundamentally change who she is as a young girl and growing into a, into a very confident woman when, when she moves into adulthood. So we encourage girls there to get on their iPads for one hour. Of course, the curriculum is pre, predefined based on age and the learning, uh, the learning caliber of the child there. But we watch their performance through big data, right? And that's where technology comes in. We know sitting here, that what is login time and log off time for Maya? What did she do today? How is she performing? That's the power of technology. I will say back to my point earlier, there are certain gaps as well. Like the biggest gap that we see on the ground is encouragement, an ambassador, someone who can sit with her and encourage her and say, you know, you're doing awesome. You did awesome today. You're going to do super fabulous tomorrow. And so this is one of the networks that we're building on the ground, which is, you know, female leaders, local leaders who role models, leaders who these young girls look upon to, and then have these leaders be source of encouragement, which may or may not, they, they may not even get it from home, which is totally fine. Again, we don't want to get into that conversation, but what we want to do is encourage digital education. We do not want that to pause. So that is one example. The other example I will give is, um, you know, human trafficking is one of the biggest stigma that exists in our community today. And I know at the top level, we tend to avoid it. Somehow there is a whole stigma around that topic. But what we've been doing through United Nations in the last few months is identifying deep hot pockets of where human trafficking exists. So I'll give you a super simple example of how we are impacting that whole transaction chain of human trafficking. So let's just say every Friday, um, 11.30 p.m., there is a boat that docks at a dockyard. And on that boat are about seven girls, seven to eight girls. There, is, there are a couple of adults, maybe male or female adults. The boat docks, 
they quickly offload the girls and they move them into a van in dark. Nobody knows, you know, who, do, who these people are, who these girls are. Average age of girls is roughly between 7 to 13 years old. The van goes away. Nobody knows where those girls from, came from. Nobody knows where the girls are going to. They are sold literally at a price of $12 each. How ridiculous is that, right? And so what we are doing is leveraging the power of AI to say, when is that transaction likely going to happen? So preempting the transaction, understanding the models and behaviors of this business so deeply so that we are able to predict the timing, the location of the transaction and accordingly alert the local judicial system that this is going to happen. So, so yeah, again, you, tell me, tell me who is, who's sponsoring that effort? Uh, so United Nations is doing it. Wow. And there are multiple organizations that are out there. You know, there are a lot of examples. I'm just sharing with you back to my original point, which I made is we often talk about technology and technology being sold into multi-billion dollar businesses. That is technology, yes, to keep the economy going, to keep our society going, right? But there are some fundamental issues that exist at ground level. And that's where the most best use case of technology is right there. And they're very simple use cases. We don't need, you know, extremely complex algorithms of AI to solve these, these, these issues that are out there. Yeah. They, they are very simple use cases that can be solved. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because you, you've really run the gamut from, I mean, um, you know, we've been so proud to be able to leverage AI to, you know, produce more personalized learning for our technology. And now you're talking about using AI, you know, basically to save lives. And it, it really, it puts things in perspective um, significantly. Um, that, I mean, that's a really poignant use of technology that I hadn't even um, considered, to be honest with you. Let me ask you a question, just, just moving on to, um, you know, we're making progress in so many areas and you've listed some of them. Um, in terms of where progress is still lagging, and I'm thinking in particular, I still feel that there is a, a lack of progress in terms of um, uh, female uh, entrepreneurs, tech founders, as well as uh, black and brown um, uh, founders. Uh, you know, I, I, I still feel like there's a tremendous amount holding them back. And here we are in 2020. You look around, you know, especially with what has happened recently. And I know I find myself asking how much has changed in the past 30 years, but what are, what are your thoughts about that as well as maybe, I don't know, any promising areas of opportunity as well? I don't want to make it seem like a gloom and doom thing. I'm just trying to keep things in perspective. Yeah, you know, I will say, Denise, this whole conversation about female founders and underrepresented founders has been sort of abused in the last few years, right? I think we tend to talk about it as market optics and there is really little walk, walking the talk. We all know that fundamentally the number one issue that exists for female founders is access to capital. All right. So what are we doing about it? That's my question, right? And so when we look at the market stats, one of the things we hear is there's a pipeline issue. Absolutely not. You know, in, in our program, Microsoft Global Social Entrepreneurship Program, and even at Microsoft for Startups, 
if I want to go and hunt for gems out there in terms of female founders and underrepresented founders, guess what? I am going to find them, right? So there's definitely not a pipeline issue. And again, I keep hearing access to capital is the number one issue for female founders or, you know, there's a pipeline issue. We do have capital, but we don't have female founders. And the answer is no, there is enough total addressable market size that is, that's sitting there waiting to get funded with their absolutely fabulous solutions. Somebody has to go and look for them. That's number one. Totally number two is, yeah, number two is we, again, get hung up on access to capital. I, I work with so many female founders, you included, Denise, and that's why I take immense pride in what you have done, is access to capital is, the bug does not stop there. So great, if you need capital, we'll give you capital, right? Now, what next? Next is customer acquisition. You, the, you will have to bring in sales from certain aspects, certain, certain channels to make sure that you have a good runway of your business. And so I think an equally important topic that needs to be talked about when we talk about female and underrepresented founders is ensuring that we also give them access to customers. Why don't we talk about it vocally? It is super critical that these founders have access to the right forums, right channels for understanding their customer acquisition strategy. Particularly, particularly for B2B solutions that involve enterprise, for example. Absolutely. B2B even more so. And even B2C for that matter. Right. And I always encourage the founders I work with, like, do not look upon large enterprise companies to bring you deal flow or to bring you revenue. Network, talk to your talk to your investors, talk to folks who are not investing in you to say that, hey, you know, great, we could not make this work this time. Could you guide me? Like, which other market can I diversify in or penetrate in where I can get better customer traction? So I think it's a whole package that exists. The third thing I would say is lack of mentors. And I have personally seen that we get, again, too hung up with capital, investors, and customers. But guess what? We do need role models. We all need role models. You need a role model. I need a role model, right? Someone who I can look up to, someone who I can understand, you know, how they have been able to accomplish what they have accomplished today. And so lack of mentors is, and I've seen immense research studies out there. It keeps popping up every single year and it burns me to say, why aren't we helping these female and underrepresented founders? Why aren't we mentoring them? It does not take that, that much, like 30 minutes, an hour, a week, you know, guiding someone, helping someone should not be impacting anyone's schedule. So I think these three things are fundamentally what we are seeing as being constant uh, impediments and constant topics that are being talked about. But I think it's high time we start walking the talk, right? And, and really identifying avenues for change there. I think, yeah. And I think, you know, we have to effectively make the business case for why it's important to have a diversity of founders at the table at, with access to capital, having their innovations and dreams and aspirations come to life because it's not just because it's the right thing to do. It's because what, you know, whenever we have a variety of, uh, of, of, of brain space of thought leadership, we're going to move the society forward and 
the overall global business economy forward just by not always having the same types of solutions coming from the same types of people. So Absolutely. Uh, I think that's, that's the other angle. Yeah, the other angle, Denise, I would add is, you know, again, we get too much too hung up into what's out in the market. But balancing life, work-life balance is so critical. In fact, I was reading a research study that just came out. It, it was a survey conducted with about 200 female founders during COVID. So it's a relatively recent study. And I was amazed to see how work-life balance has suddenly become a dominant theme. Women tend to talk less about work-life balance. If, like, you know, if, if you're an entrepreneur, you're constantly out there talking to investors and you know, you're constantly trying to raise and work-life balance is sort of a back topic. It's well, a back we're, try, we're topic. trying to, we're trying to prove that, that we are as good as men, as men, if not better, that we work, you know, 10 times harder, et cetera. That, I mean, that's, that's one of the main reasons we don't talk about it. Yeah. And I will quote United Nations here. I remember reading um, a research from them, which basically insinuated that women around the world earn less, save less, have less access to social protections and financial resources and are majority caretakers at home. And so the capacity to absorb economic shock is less than their male counterparts because that's the environment that they live in. Now, we may claim ourselves to be strong women leaders, but at the end of the day, we are also you know, caretakers at home. We expect that this is going to be long lasting and it's going to have a significant impact even in the post COVID-19 world. A lot of things are changing around us. So while we can continue to harp on the fundamental issues that exist around female and underrepresented founders, let's not forget, we're going to walk into a brand new world post COVID-19. And that's going to change a lot of perspective and how we view not only the investment landscape, but also the new the, the solutions that are emerging from female founders and underrepresented founders. And I think, I, I think too, we have to point out that systemically, we have not dealt with this issue the way we would any other uh, business problem, right? We have not been strategic in our pro- approach with our larger um, institutions, we, you know, b- b- business in particular has, has often taken a check the box approach instead of uh, addressing things the way they, they would any other um, um, business issue. It's the same thing with this one. If we're going to level the playing field, we have to be unbelievably strategic in our approach um, in how to do that. Um, but let yeah. me um, let me move on to. What I I think it, it it pays given you you know your position you know what you do for a living. I think it pays to ask you say, yeah, one piece of advice that you might want to give to a young um, let's just let, let's say uh, a young female um, uh, budding aspiring tech entrepreneur. What what is uh, what's a piece of advice that you might give them? Gosh, I have many pieces of advice, Denise, but I'm going to call out two, if that's okay with you, because I strongly believe in number two as well. So the first and the foremost advice I would give to any aspiring entrepreneur is don't take no for an answer. Don't let the world tell you what you should be doing. You should be telling the world that this is my solution. This is my baby. This is my dream. This is how it fits into the world. So do not take no for an answer. And as you're building your business, you know, you're going to get sucked into conversations where 
folks may say, hey, you need to pivot your product. And, you know, what are you doing with this? this? There's no product market fit. If you truly fundamentally believe in your idea, in your product, own it. Just own it. That's number one. Number two is always, always build and train your brain muscle to give back. Always find ways to give back. Even if you're an aspiring entrepreneur and you know, you're in your, in your early stages, the learning, the knowledge that you're getting, look around you and try to help and guide and mentor folks who may need that guidance from you. And as you become an established entrepreneur, just go out, do a lot of, you know, just, just meet with people who you can help, who you can share your knowledge with. I, I truly believe that paying forward helps not only in giving, giving to others, but also taking back from them because there's so much you can learn from others' experiences, right? Where they're struggling, where they're, where they're facing issues. And while you're coaching them and you're mentoring them, you're also learning that experience back from them. And so I truly believe in that. I love that. And may I, may I just add sort of just one, one additional factor, at least just from my own personal experience? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, as you know, Shalu, my background is in uh, organizational and behavioral psychology and the law and, you know, uh, organizational change and cultural transformation, which are all important areas, but I did not grow up with a tech background. And here I am as, uh, as uh, you know, at the helm of a technology firm. And so I just want to say with regard to technology, if you have an idea and you, uh, you think that, that it could change the world, but you do not have a tech background, you can surround yourself with incredible technical people who can yeah. help you bring that, that dream to uh, a reality. I found it, to be honest with you, very intimidating at first. You know, what business do I have uh, developing uh, technology? You know, what, you know, people were saying, well, what, what do you even mean by a virtual coach and so on? And I just kept plugging at it and surrounding myself with the people who could fill in the gaps, uh, you know, of knowledge that I di hadn't yet acquired. And so I just wanted to in encourage, you know, everyone out there that has, but especially women and 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 people of color who who maybe have not traditionally be been um, supported in this way to say. Um, use Shalou's advice to make it happen and don't be intimidated by any sort of lack of tech background. Yeah. And if I may just tag along on that, uh, Denise, you made an excellent point. If you really think about technology, technology is not intrinsically good or bad, right? So if you don't have the technology, it doesn't make you like less valuable than your counterpart but it can produce positive or negative outcomes and often both depending on how it's used. So it affects different parts of the business depending on where you're placed. But, you know, I love your, your idea or your guidance here to say, if I'm not good in something and if it's not my area of strength, let me go and get it from somebody else. Right. And that's a very strong sign of a good leader. Yeah, I think yeah, there has to be a certain amount of humility, of course, but not but not fear and not uh, trepidation and not feeling less than, but but seeking out collaboration. Absolutely. Um, so let me ask you, Shalu, what are um, are there any specific technologies that you can think of that are showing potential for being um, really valuable assets? You know, particularly with regard 
to um, you know either level, leveling the playing field as we've been discussing or learning technology? I think technology is one area which is constantly changing, right? So up until a few years ago, we were talking about hardware and then of course, cloud overtook our lives. <clears throat> we were talking about big data for the longest time, data analytics, et cetera. AI machine learning is a dominant theme right now. And I think it's gonna to continue to be a dominant theme for the next few years. The other technology spaces where I see a lot of promise, one is deep tech. And deep tech is one of the areas that I'm personally very passionate about, which is applying these principles of AI and machine learning into science and math and engineering concepts there and actually building business models that go deeper in that space. So I'm super fascinated by it. And I've seen some amazing use cases by female founders in that space. The other, th the other sector I would look at is 5G. And we know there's a lot of, lot of growth happening in Asia right now in 5G, but it's soon coming to our side of the world as well. Uh, and and the beauty of 5G is that you actually, if you're building a business model, either supporting it or in, in some capacity, building a business model that will help an enterprise customer, I would say it's an easy peasy because it's, it's definitely a low maintenance business solution purely hosted on cloud. So there's, it's less complex, but of course it'll have longer sales cycles. Those buckets I think are, are very promising in the next few years. All right, I think, you know, and just in terms of, of, of wrapping up our time together, I know when you and I are together, we could just talk for hours. But, yeah. Yeah, but since we have limited time, I guess just as a wrap up, we have been dealing with recently such a tumultuous time. I guess every generation would say that maybe even every decade, we could say that there's some sort of, you know, principal disruption, but we, we, we have gone from, you know, COVID-19 to racial unrest. It seems like, you know, from one thing to another, is there a way that technology can, you know, either help us navigate that or, or maybe build, um, you know, build on these challenges in some, in some way that will lead to building a better future? That's an awesome question, um, Denise. And I would say a very thought-provoking question. It's, it, it, at least I'm going deeper into what we have seen in the last few months, something that we did not even expect, right? Coming into 2020, there were big and bold ambitions around how the investment landscape is going to increase, how technology is is going to even supersede the last decade. My perspective is the development and adoption of advanced technologies like smart automation and AI, it has the potential to not only raise productivity and GDP growth, but also to improve well-being more broadly, including through healthcare and longevity of life and financial services and more rest time that, that most of us had missed in this crazy life that we led in the last decade and even beyond that. I think one thing that we have learned in the last few months is self-care, right? And so to achieve these benefits and reduce disruption and potentially destabilizing effects on society, it will require an emphasis on innovation-led growth and careful management of the workforce and other transitions related to technology adoption and diffusion. 
And let's not think that once we are in this post-COVID world, life is going to get back to our normal, which was in 2019. It's going to look significantly different. And I think what we need to be cautious of and constantly reminding ourselves of is self-care, understanding what the landscape exists out there and pivoting based on that and not really going so like literally killing ourselves to fit into what's out there, but really understanding the power that technology holds and how it's significantly going to change our life in, in generations to come. Well, I, I, I want to thank you so much. That was very profound and something that we, we all need to be um, holding dear as we move forward um, in the coming months uh, and years. So, Shalu, I wanted to thank you for joining us. This was very um, meaningful to me. Um, no, Denise, thank you very much for the opportunity. And it's been a pleasure working with yourself, your team at Redwork. And, you know, I couldn't be prouder to see you just moving from our conversation last year when was it in august and now we are yep. sitting here a year later just reflecting on how far you have come and i wish you and your team an absolutely stellar many years ahead and a lot of success to you thank you so much um and that was my colleague friend and tech leader shalu garg managing director of microsoft for startups and this is the leading tomorrow podcast as always, if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a rating and review and feel free to subscribe. Uh, by the way, we share new interviews every other Thursday, so be sure not to miss our next episode. And for now, I will just say goodbye and Shalu, I will look forward to our next conversation.